The stock market returns follow earnings over the long term. They roughly follow earnings. Yeah. Roughly. Okay. Roughly. Roughly. But yeah. no, so do I need to get bumper stickers printed that say complex adaptive system? <laughs> This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Dougals, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. What a difference a year makes. We're going to say this every year. Uh, It means last year and then this year, what's in between is the difference. And what a difference that makes. And la- yeah, last year was 2021. This year's 2022. It's amazing. Oh, my goodness. So can, different. You, can you imagine? Next year, you're going to be telling me it's 2023. Next year, you're going to be telling me it's 2023. Get to your point already, Diggles. My, my, <laughs> my point, my broad point, so we're coming up on year end here. And my broad point is so much has happened this year. I'm going to go on a, out on a limb. I'm going to say this was an exciting year. I won't say it was an excellent year, but I'll say it was exciting. I know what you're doing. And I will say it's exceptional. (laughs) Anyway, all right. I have an egg question for you. (laughs) That's not even a, I don't know, whatever whatever you call it. I'm not as clever as you. So the whole whole thing here is there's a lot of reasons. And when we do our uh, year recap, which is probably going to come out next year, next week or the week after. Um, when we do that year recap, we'll talk more about the year stuff. But what I want to talk about right now is the number one grocery item from a price increase perspective year over year is what? Eggs. It is eggs. Here's why you should 49%. Care. 49% up this year. In comparison, let me give you a couple comparisons. Lettuce up about, what, 20%? You mean the former Cereals. prime minister of Great Britain there? Yes, what? a.k.a. lettuce. Okay. Cereals and bakery products, which should not be lumped together, but they are here. 16%. Grain-based. I mean, I get it. Yep. Milk, 15%. So anyway, 49%. And this is kind of wild. Now, I, yesterday, my wife was out at the grocery store doing what you do at grocery stores, which is grocery shopping. And she sees an empty virtually empty shelf in the egg department. I don't do this thing called grocery shopping because I don't understand what these stores are for, what you do in them. But what I do do is I like read all these articles and whatnot. And so my response, she sent me a picture of the the empty shelf. My response was I sent her this article for her to read in the grocery store. I don't know why I'm sending this article about what's happening with eggs, because this is a, this is actually like a meaningful event what's happening with eggs right now. And it's not just the price of eggs. Do you know why it's meaningful? I have no clue where you're going with this. <laughs> I, I hope people care about this because I think it's important. So we had an avian flu this year. Avian equals birds. D- different than COVID. Yes. There's an avian flu this year. The last time there was an avian flu was in 2015 in the United States of America. It was in 2015, real bad in 2015. And the the reason why in this country, at least, people likely even know the term bird flu, avian flu, is because of 2015, because it didn't really happen for a decade, two decades, multi-decades before then. But this one's real bad. I'm going to give you a couple numbers. And this is, this is a, the main reason 
why eggs are so high. Uh, actually, quiz. Real bad, worst in U.S. history, avian flu. How many birds do you believe passed? 2022. 15000000 57.8 million birds. I mean, I feel like you're going to get us off task here. You can't talk about avian flus and the price of eggs without talking about some of the questionable farming practices and the yes, birds being lumped into massive yes, warehouses. I yes, okay. I can. And I will. So this is a lot of birds, right? But here's what I didn't. We, we can get off this. I think I think it's like real meaningful. Well, because no, in 2020. Hold on, though. Ahead. Is the way is the fact that a lot of this is done in massive warehouses where I think you can have more than a, bir- a million birds in a single spot, if not significantly more than that, playing a significant role here? Do you know that? Um, I'm pretty sure I don't know for sure, but I'm pretty sure it is because the avian flu is very contagious. Yeah. And so how could that not? And it's super deadly. So when I say super deadly, 90 to 100 percent of chickens die when they get the avian flu. Yeah. Within 48 hours. My goodness. Yeah. Massive. Right. And so then we the thing with with uh, 2022 and many things happen many years. But if you extend 20. 20 to 2022 we can even just talk about 2022 there's just so many things that are occurring that something like the largest avian flu in u.s history doesn't even like hit the radar because we got Putin up in ukraine right we've got all the supply chain shocks we've got inflation we have the stock market falling apart and 60 million birds are like what about us yeah what's crazy though is i knew the price was up like in my local grocery store they're rationing eggs but to your point, I didn't know why. I assumed this was some other COVID-related supply chain nonsense, right? This is almost an entirely different thing that because of how crazy this year is, this goes exactly to your point, just gets lost in the shuffle. Yes, exactly. And I'm going to close on this is in the same graph that shows the like percent change year over year for a bunch of products, consumers are in trouble because at the bottom of this, are items that are losing price, like going down in price. Smartphones down 23%. Televisions down 17%. And I know that there are people, and I'm warning against this right now, there are people that are going to go, I guess I should buy less eggs and buy more televisions. And that is not what is happening here. This gets back to your, uh, your whole like Black Friday thing, right? <laughs> Just because something costs less doesn't mean you buy more of it. You should not buy more smartphones and more TVs and less eggs. Do not do this. I mean, I could kind of get behind that. TVs are more exciting than eggs. (laughs) (laughs) If you don't have to put calories in your body. I mean, true. Go for it. All right. Yeah. I, the last thing on that graph, we had a debate about airfares a while back. And unfortunately it looks like Dougal's is right. Airfares are up 36%. And we won't even go down the Southwest train. There are many podcasts you can listen to that will talk about the Southwest debacle right now. But who and for Southwest, Southwest is like the epitome of well operating machines in the airfare world. So anyway, all right, let's change topics. Let's change topics. Yeah, fascinating stuff. So I know we're going to talk SPACs in a little bit. Let me squeeze one thing in if you don't mind. I sent you a video this week. It was taken from mid-year 2022. And it simply is a TikTok where a guy goes around and interviews uh, used car and new car salespeople 
and talks about their monthly payment for their cars. Now, I'm sure this is cherry picked, but there's maybe 10 people in this video and all of the monthly payments were north of 800 bucks with this is a monthly payment for a car. Uh, they were between 800 and 1500 dollars a month, if I remember correctly. I am and, still shocked by this. And people with multiple cars, that's like one of their car payments. Yeah, yeah. They go, oh, which one? There was an individual that had an eleven hundred a dollar a month car payment for one car and a thirteen hundred dollar a month payment for another car. <laughs> it doesn't take rocket science to figure out that that's twenty four hundred dollars a month, which can be a nice size mortgage. I mean, I know a lot of people, myself included, that are paying less than that for a place to live, let alone have two cars. The bigger those, so the absolute dollars, big. And what's even more meaningful is the percent of income, right? Yes. Of what, what payments are, which they didn't talk about here. But I can tell you just from watching this video, they did not walk into like Goldman Sachs office and walk up to the partner floor and talk to folks. This, this is, is not like they found somebody bankers. in the back of a Dollar Tree. Like, this is I, not I sea level. No, I, I honestly think most of these people sell cars for a living and that's a honorable profession. Or, well, I don't know about the profession, but it's fine. It's not sea level um, compensation figures. Let's just say that. So first, just a sanity check. Am I just completely out of touch? Is this more common than I realized, Dougals? I have no idea. There, actually, there must be something out there that shows the average car payment. Um, I might even while we're talking here, I might Google that and bring it up a little bit later if I can find it, because uh, I don't know. I was surprised when you first sent this to me and they were like, what's your average car payment? I expected maybe the high end, given like that they weren't talking to people that work at Goldman. I thought the high end might be 800 or something, not multiple cars at over a thousand dollars a pop. Like that was very surprising to me. So I do not know what the average is, how common this is, but I'd love to see a, like a histogram, you know, uh, something like that. Exactly. Um, this quick research here looks like the average monthly car payment for a brand new vehicle at the end of Q3 was about 700 bucks a month. That's what our, that's what I thought was the high end affair. And an average for used one is 500. I mean, I guess I'm stuck in the past here. I remember maybe a decade ago when it seemed nearly impossible to spend $500 a month on a car if you financed it. Just absolutely crazy. I think what, what really has me fired up about this is cars are such a depreciating asset that if you're spending $1,500 a month somewhere, like, can you imagine if you're buying $1,500 a month worth of stock and driving a 20-year-old Honda Civic? how much better your financial life looks if you do that. I I mean, this might just turn into a rant for me so we can move on, but I am just absolutely shocked by this video. All right. I'm doing some other quick math. Now we are like taking quick research assumptions on assumptions and assumptions here, but yeah, I'm still, I'm going to, I'm going to throw this out because this is important, right? We talked about it's the, the percent of household income that ends up mattering the most. Yes. Right. Okay. So I don't know where this falls, but here you go. You said 700 bucks ish, right? Is yeah. the uh, the average car payment. On average in the US, my quick research shows there's 1.88 cars per household, right? Yeah. So you're looking at somewhere between $1,300 and $1,400 a month on cars. And 
if you go to the median household or average household income in the US, it's about $70,000 for a household. So if we do 1300 divided by 70,000, 1300 times 12. Oh, oops. 15,600. No, no, so it's, I'm doing it. So 15,000. It's like 25%. 22. So okay, granted, I hope most people don't have two brand new cars. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I hope you have one paid off or something. But yeah, that's my point exactly. The old school conservative math for a mortgage is 25% of income, right? And you have people spending that on cars. I And you know what? It was even more incredible. These cars were not like um, cutting edge Mercedes or Teslas. In most cases, they asked for a model and it was a big truck or something. I mean, yeah, I, I, we, we got to move on. Consumers are in trouble. Between the eggs and the cars, consumers are in trouble. <laughs> uh, I I don't get it. I can't, I can't even fathom this one. All right. You want to go next? Want me to go next? Go for it. Okay. I, I'm going to do, I'm going to do twofer. There's a little bit of a twofer here. They're two separate topics, but falling under the same umbrella. And that umbrella is what you like to call mean reversion. I like to call a bunch of nonsense coming back to sense. (laughs) There are items that we have discussed a couple times, few times, right over the past couple years, they got out of out of whack, out of control, and now are at least coming back down a little bit to earth. They're not back down to earth yet, but a little bit to earth. The first one we we can talk about is what you mentioned before, which is SPACs, special purpose acquisition companies. These are organizations like you can think of them like holding companies, right? They are empty shells of companies that are put together for the purpose of buying another company and in recent history, more specifically, to buy another company to take that company public without that other company having to go through all of the due diligence, et cetera, that you don't normally have to go through for an IPO. So over the past couple of years, you want to step in? These are sometimes called blank check companies because you go to investors and say, write me a check and then I will go find the company that we will acquire and take public. So, yep. Very unusual. Typically, like this basically never happened until uh, late 2020 into 2021. The track record of these companies has been terrible. <laughs> um, almost without fail, you lose money. Yes, pretty much. Um, and, and I'm going to clarify something about what you just said in a second, because it's right, but I want there's a nuance to it. So when you say basically never happened. There would be SPACs came about, I think like about 30 years ago, like kind of in any real form, but it was, it was pretty rare. Didn't really occur in the last 20 years. You might get like tens, sometimes one a year that would uh, take a company public in 2020, 248 companies went public via SPACs in 2021, 613 companies went public via SPACs. So you're talking like 10 to 20 to 30 to 600 X, depending on the year that you use as a baseline, the number of companies that are going public by SPAC. It it was a clear sign. It was a real-time indicator of a bubble. Yes. And some people called it and others thought it was this brave new world. And you're going to tell us some facts now about how it probably wasn't a brave new world. Yes. 
It was not a brave new world. And we were we were a couple people that talked about this and called it. And we had an episode called uh, The Road to a Spectacular Disaster uh, back in, was that 2021? Was that last year that we talked about that? Probably. Yeah, um, it, it was. was. It must have been. And so one other fact before we get into some, uh, some of the detail of what's happening now is that typically SPACs have something like a two-year lifespan. Like they're given money and they have about two years to find a company to take public, right? So there's a there's a clock that's running on that organization. So right now, there are about 70 of these SPACs that have liquidated and returned money to investors since the start of December. That is a lot. So 70. Okay. That is more, according to the Wall Street Journal, that is more than the total number of SPAC liquidations in the history of the market. <laughs> <laughs> it's so great. <laughs> like so in in December of 2022 more SPACs have liquidated and returned money to their investors than ever before another and this is going to get to your your losing money piece because this is really important so SPAC creators have lost more than 600 million dollars in liquidations this month and more than 1.1 billion dollars this year however what's most important and this is the nuance I want to throw out from what you were saying earlier is the people that lose money are real, are typically the the investors in the like the the secondary I'll call it investors in the SPACs and not the creators. So while the creators have lost six hundred million this month, one point one billion dollars this year, they they already made the bulk of their money when the SPAC took the company public in the first place. So I, I don't have numbers on this, but like from what I what I see in this uh, this journal article and it makes sense to me is that like that 600 million dollars that 1.1 billion is like not even it's like chump change compared to the quote-unquote fortunes that have been made chamath one of your best friends chamath he's shutting down a couple spacs uh, he shut down a couple spacs in september he said his firm made 750 million dollars across the deals otherwise so yeah so people are making money i i don't want to go i'm not an expert on this and and so just to provide a little content effectively the way this works is when you raise money the person that brings all the investors together gets a huge cut off the top and typically you can take a company public regardless of the future performance of that company and get i think it's as much as 20 percent of the raise but it's millions and millions of dollars in some case more so it's it is a blank check company where the organizing party almost has a win-win proposition and everyone else the other investors have a proposition that is likely to lose like it would be upset to find a way to make money with this long term hopefully we never see another boom like this because it's not good for investors agreed and it's similar to the conversation that we had either last week or the week before when we were saying that when you see that there's a a quote-unquote great investor big name investor i should call it big name investor that's out there that has quote unquote skin in the game. You don't know what skin they have out of the game. Even if you see if you see a big name investor or just a famous person that has a SPAC that's out there. If they already took a billion dollars off the table, them having a hundred million dollars on the table doesn't really tell you a lot. Mm -hmm. And so it might feel as if like, oh, we're on this together, but they're not per what, what Skippy was just saying there. And this reminds me of The Walking Dead here. You watch The Walking Dead? No. Okay. Well, you can just picture a bunch of dead people walking around. There are almost 400 SPACs holding about $100 billion that are out there looking for deals still currently. Mm -hmm. 
And in the environment that we're in right now is one where valuations have been hit really hard. A bunch of the good stuff was probably taken two years ago. The quote unquote good stuff, right? was taken a couple of years ago. So you're looking for garbage. There's a hundred billion dollars out there looking amongst the trash heap. Yep. No offense to if you're still out there because the, the non-trash heap, and this, this is another big point. The folks that like the private companies that are out there right now that are quality are not looking to be bought by a SPAC. Like they will probably refuse to be bought by a SPAC. And so SPACs are limited to the organizations that are likely a bit more desperate, need liquidation or liquidity of some sort. And so there's $100 billion looking for question mark. I, I, that's, a, that's a big statement I'm making, but I'm going to make it. <laughs> yeah. I, um, I wish I had done another deep dive because when we talked about specs previously, I kind of did a lot of research here. And so from memory, I'm worried I'm going to mess this up. But in some cases, I think the incentives work for the organizing party where they make more money if they take something public, even if what they take is public is complete garbage. So that incentive piece has me even more worried about the money that is still out there. I think yes. in some cases you could have bad actors say, I don't care what it is. I mean, to your point, if you're a profitable, well-capitalized company, you probably don't want to go public with a spec anyway, especially in this environment. So I hope that doesn't happen. I hope at this point people realize that this was probably a poor decision, give money back to investors and move forward. Last point before we move on to the second part of the nonsense becoming sense is if you look at the average valuations of companies going public via SPAC, go back to, this looks like it's Q2 or Q3 of 2021, almost $3 billion was the average valuation of a company. Yep. Now it's more like $200 million to $300 million. It's so it's about a 90% cut. Roughly, I'm eyeballing this off of this uh, this graph here, but 90% cut. It is drastic. Okay, this one will be this one will be even shorter. You got anything else on SPACs before I no? Over? Okay, this one will be even shorter. Nonsense coming to sense. All right, January 2021, we were talking about the meme craze. The meme craze. Everybody talking about the meme craze, right? AMC was one of those stocks that got caught up in meme mania, and by caught up, greatly benefited and is surviving today because of, <laughs> I should mm -hmm. say, they, they, were, they were they're in no way, shape, or form a victim of the meme craze. January 4th, 2021, that was the first day of stock trading in 2021, AMC opened at $2.20. December 30th of 2022, last trading day, 2022, AMC closed at $4.07, up 92%. If you, if all you did, you put the money into AMC at the beginning, you fell asleep, Rip Van Winkle, and then woke up a couple of years later, be like, cool, <laughs> right? Like that's, that's some hotness. I made my good choices, go back to sleep. <laughs> but the 2021 high for AMC, $64.96. So at one point, AMC was up 2,695%. <laughs> like, I don't even know. I don't even know what to. This is uh, for the New York Times for their year in review had a bunch of charts, right? Just, you know, this is how the S&P performed versus NASDAQ versus crypto. And on their chart, 
they just cut off the bottom at 40%. And like in the middle of the year, crypto just falls off the chart, right? This is what you need with AMC too, is like, if you're comparing it with anything, it just either goes off the chart to the top or off the chart to the bottom because the performance yes. is spectacular. Um, and, and in some cases, spectacularly bad. Seems like AMC's actually come back to earth. For the most part. I mean, I, the only thing you can say where they haven't is, is still up almost double. Now, to be fair, at the end of 2020, AMC was on its last legs. Like, so you could say that today that company should be worth twice as much as it was then, because at that point in time, its survival was completely questionable, whereas now it's only questionable and not completely questionable. Yeah, it's still, I mean, I don't know the prospects of the mining company they purchased. This this, <laughs> this is a good opportunity to tell my favorite story in the past two years. AMC, during the height of this craze, their management team, meaning their CEO and their CFO, basically sold all their stock. And those guys are clearly smart because they knew it wasn't worth this. And then the company issued a statement when they they were issuing more stock to the public markets to raise money. And they issued a statement that said, this stock is worthless. Do not buy it. Our company has basically no prospects of success. Most amazing thing. I've never seen another company do it. Um, I hope a company never does it again. They, with straight faces, they sold equity to shareholders and said it's worth $0. So good. It's kind of to to the reason why you love this story, I think, or at least the reason why I love it. And I think this is part of it is it speaks completely to the times where I can I can give you something. I say, Skippy, here's a pen. You know, the old like sell me a pen thing from was it from yeah. his, whatever, some big play interview for a sales job. <clears throat> yeah. Sell me a pen. Yeah. Sell me a pen. If I went, this pen's absolutely worthless. $40 and you went, Oh yeah. yeah. Do you have two? Like that, that is what was, let happening. me run to the car. I have 10. Yeah. Here you that go. What was happening right then. Right. It's like, and how do you, as a, as a company, you got to be scratching your head and be like, how, as a human being, I cannot morally justify <laughs> what I'm about to offer. And as a person that has a fiduciary responsibility <laughs> to this company, I have to offer more. Like no, so that's the most interesting thing is um if I have my corporate finance business strategy hat on, I almost want to applaud the leadership team at that point in time. If you have like your moral human hat on, it seems like what they're doing is questionable. And I honestly don't know cuz they do have a responsibility to their shareholders. Like I honestly don't know where that line is and if they made a right decision. But they did come out and clearly stay, say, we think this is worth, this is effectively worthless and you should not buy it. People still bought it. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? All right. You got, you got fish bolio? Just one thing real quick. So a lot of, a lot of shops, a lot of investment research shops do uh, 10-year projections based on current valuations. And those projections for future performance 10 years out tend to be... Um, pretty solid. We we talk a lot on the show about predictions and forecasts and how you shouldn't rely on them and how poor they are. The one caveat to that is probably if you're doing something that's seven to 10 years out, um, it tends to be pretty reliable because long-term performance 
of the stock market is fairly predictable based on valuations. Short term is just a coin flip. So whether it's GMO or research affiliates or other ones, the 10-year projections for US equities, this is like the S&P 500 right now, um, was negative at the most recent peak just a couple months back. And now as stock market valuations have come down, as the valuation of the S&P 500 has come down to say that more articulately, return projections look like they're in the range of 4% a year for the next 10 years. What's fascinating to me about this is simply the thought experiment here, right? One, I'm not holding just the S&P 500 because I believe in buying based on valuation. So the stuff I'm buying um, should have much greater return expectations than 4% a year. But your average investor might be. And where do US treasuries sit right now? Dougal's right at about 4%. Yep. So we're, we're at a tipping point where we haven't been in recent times where an investor could say, listen, I can hold the S&P 500 and probably over the next 10 years, I'll make 4% a year. Or I can say, I don't want to do that crazy roller coaster ride, manage my emotions. I can buy something that's much safer and much less volatile and end up in a similar place. What's bizarre because we're all humans is that there's a roller coaster ride in both directions. One, one roller coaster ride has to do with what you do hold, which is when yeah. you're buying out in the market. The other roller coaster ride has to do with you, what you don't hold. Owning treasuries, when your friend next door owns AMC going up 2,600%, is also really difficult. And so just know yourself before you, know, you choose what direction. But I, I also, going back to your point, it is fascinating. It's really fascinating. And 4% quote unquote guaranteed four to five percent quote unquote guaranteed is pretty solid De depending on age risk tolerance etc but it's not what it was a year ago zero percent like when mm -hmm. there was no when remember when tina was strutting around like yep it's not even close to that man tina was on the prowl there was nothing else to do with your nothing. money and nothing. that's why amc was going up like this i mean it's it's crazy how different that is just from the mentality piece because 18 months ago, there was really no other place. This is why um, you had BlackRock buying subdivisions, right? Just like 300 houses at a time because they didn't have anywhere else to put their money. And now those investments don't look so great. So it's a brave new world on that front. Um, I can't wait to watch interest rates in 2023. Um, but I think I mentioned it two weeks back. Just know that we're in a different spot. And if you had a hard time managing your emotions through the roller coaster ride of 2022, there might be a way to recalibrate that helps you sleep at night. Word. Okay, I got one last thing in the fishbowl before we hit the last listener mail of 20 deuce deuce. <laughs> there you go again. Yeah, there you go. All right, last thing. And this has to do with predictions as well. Uh, James McIntosh came out with an article in the journal. Our boy. Our boy. Our boy like A little, little bit more legitimately. Our boy. Joined us from London. He's the man. He is. He is. Came out with this article in the Wall Street Journal called Wall Street Nailed Earnings But Missed the Bear Market. And it's a, it's a really short and like simple piece. And I think it's kind of awesome <laughs> because and the 
the way that this article starts, if it just started this way and had nothing else, it'd be brilliant. Here it goes. If I told you that a group of really smart people on Wall Street were able to predict exactly how much money America's biggest companies would make a year from now, you might think they could tell us where the stock market where the stock market would go. Not so much. So for the first time on record, which goes the record goes back a little under 30 years. For the first time on record, the earnings consensus for the stock market in the US, this might just be S&P 500. Yeah, S&P 500. Yeah, it is. Was like right on point. The consensus was $221 per share. And it was off by like a dollar, I think, something like that. It was like right on point. And it's usually off by 10, 20%, you know, in the positive and negative, something like that. Right on point. Like nailed. They said, we know, we know how much the companies are going to make. And going to your long-term point, if you look at the graph of the stock market over the long term in the U.S., the stock market returns follow earnings over the long term. They roughly follow earnings. Yeah. Roughly. Okay. Roughly. Roughly. But yeah. no, so do I need to get bumper stickers printed that say complex adaptive system? <laughs> You're exactly right. They they said $221 in earnings for the S&P 500, all the companies there. That's basically exactly what we got. What changed is the multiples. Like, yes, we're not at a PE of 30, meaning a price to earnings ratio of 30 times. We came down. So it, even if you get one piece of this complex equation with millions of actors right, the chances that you get all those things right is basically impossible. Or if you do, it's just luck. It's not based on skill. So I love, I love James because he like really, really knows his stuff. That's evident in the interview we did with him. But I also love him because he can distill this down and say, like, this is the problem with thinking that you're you have the game figured out. Like it's too complex for that. Yep. Um, this is a really amazing piece. And even like the little graph he has, it shows how far there you you alluded this, but it shows how far they're typically been off. And they've been off by as much as 30% either direction. Well, there's five years here where they've effectively pegged it meaning less than three percent error but that's still that's just one piece of this really complex equation and speaking of multiples and this maybe you're going to call nonsense on me but this to me feels so wild the average forecast for what interest rates would be this month in december of 2022 yeah the average forecast from last December, so December 2021, was 0.5%. <laughs> what? Those are just those are just garbage, man. Haven't you <laughs> seen there's there's this really cool graph that shows what interest rates actually do versus forecasts, but they update the forecast like every quarter. And it always shows <laughs> interest rates going back to previous average basically so right now where interest rates have been low for a really long time it always shows them just going back to what we're used to which is half a percent it they are so consistently wrong it's almost unbelievable oh love this piece we'll, we'll have it on the Substack monday for you all so good thank you james okay is it time for the jingle oh give us some listener mail here we go they fight and fight and fight and fight and fight. Fight, 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 fight
All right, two pieces today from Liz and John. Uh, Liz had a really in-depth question, uh, lots of thoughts about reading recommendation and potentially diversifying your investment risk by starting a business. Dougals, I don't know that we can do this justice in a short period of time. There's a lot of nuance here. I know we've mentioned, or I've mentioned on the show that I started a new business in 2022. Super excited about that and feel like it was the right choice for me. But um, I think it's it's really an uh, independent decision based on a lot of what's happening in your financial picture and what your um, potential skill set and opportunities look like. So I don't know that I can do it justice. Can you? I don't know about justice, but I think, but I, I we can answer. I think we can both at least answer the questions. Um, the first question that Liz has, which is, how did you decide to do it? I think that like that question uh, is more straightforward. And to your justice point, the second question, which is around like, how do you think about balancing that with your family income, your personal income, and like that that one's like highly nuanced, but but we we can touch on it. One other thing I think is interesting is on the how you decided to do it. Where, from my own uh, life experience, where you are in life in your career changes that the answer to that question, um, mm-hmm. at least for me. So when I started my company, it was about 10 years ago. It's wild to think about that, but it was about 10 years ago. And at the time, to vastly oversimplify, there were two key elements to it. One was there, there was a problem like a world problem that was like eating at me that I've been thinking about for the last, like the two to three years before that and wanted to solve. Like that was a big, that was a big one. And one thing uh, since then that I think that I, that I'll say, or I've discovered, realized, or currently believe is that in a problem continuing to like either eat at you or just you think about is an important component. And also two to three years, isn't that long. Like at the time I was like, it's been, this has been eating at me for two to three years. There's like, like, as I think about current problems that may be me for a while, it's like two decades, something I might have been thinking about or like 15 years, like it's a longer period of time. But at the time there was that it was a problem that was eating at me. And the second point was I really wanted to like control the destiny of whatever company solved that problem. Like there was, a, it was really important to me that it was like a, a high growth, large ownership could become big type of company at the time, which more influenced the type of company I started more so than probably the fact that I started it. But for me, it was, it was, there was a problem I wanted to solve. So that's the answer to the first, first question for me. So Liz, for me, the reason I decided to take the jump and start my own business is because as you study um, businesses, and if you're someone who's as interested in uh, finance and investing as both Dougals and I are, you start to realize that the people that get rewarded most for a business's success are the owners of the business, right? And so I had worked in the corporate world in various roles uh, in financial strategy where I had seen you know, um, huge impacts of my work and my team, but I didn't always see the rewards of that like really challenging, stressful, hard work. And I got to a point where it was clear to me that I was ready to bet on myself. And like, hopefully, if my business succeeds, uh, receive some of those rewards, while at the same time, kind of doing it my way, right? Um, Stepping away from the corporate culture, and having more freedom to make decisions, and be accountable to the decisions that I make with my own company. So that's kind of where I got and why I still am really excited about the future. Because 
Um, I'll tell you whether you read a book like The Millionaire Next Door or anything else, this aspect of business ownership is a key piece to wealth in this country. It goes back to R is greater than G, the Thomas Pilchetti, right? I'm telling Diggles you. loves it. Diggles I'm telling it. you. I'm telling you. That'll be in a book recommendation when we send it out to. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, uh, I think that's, it's a really big point. And my, to answer the second question around balancing incomes, investments, other stuff, this is a vastly oversimplified statement for me, but it, it, to me, it's related to what you were just saying. And it has to do with point in life for me is when I started the company 10 years ago, there was no balance. It was like, this is the bet. Um, and I'm talking uh, like taking money out of 401ks, going into credit card debt. Like it was like everything was going into the business. Um, and it, it there was a part of it was like a risk reward. Like I was earlier in both my career and just family life. Um, and there's a risk reward associated with that. Now, if I decided to do it again, if I decided to do it again, it would be it'd be different. Like I have the foundation now. The the reward, like I don't need that big reward. Like it, that that isn't the thing I'm gonna like risk everything for, or at least not as I'd sit right now. So it's more right now, there'd be more of a balance. It's thinking about what does savings look like? Do we still have that emergency savings? How much can we eat into that? Uh what would income look like? And it the uh the reward would be. I won't even say lower financially, but like more long-term financially, like it'd be spread out over a longer period of time. And the reward for me would have a lot more to do with where I spend my time and the ROI on time and me feeling like I can have the balance that I'd want and still do the thing that I want and not do the other stuff that I don't want to do, right? Like that would have a lot more to do with it, but that all depends on, for me, life circumstance. And so that's like a really oversimplified answer for me. No, it's funny. I mean, um, uh, I'll reveal a few of your secrets, Dougals. Dougals did the the Silicon Valley startup thing, even from the sense of he was in San Francisco at the time, right? Um, when I started my business, I did I did it my way, and it's maybe more of a value investor way, but it's core to my philosophy. Like I had a lot of money saved, I had um, clients lined up, I had an area where. Um, I feel, I felt, and I feel like it's a true win-win and there's, everyone is better off when my business is involved. That's like core to my beliefs. So the, um, it's less risky, um, hopefully, but also, yeah, my upside is probably limited. So that's the, that those are the short simplified answers. Hope they're helpful. Feel free to follow up. Um, maybe off pod, we can, if you do follow up Liz, uh, we can give some other written responses back to you if they're helpful, but hope that's helpful. All right. Yeah, that's number two. I love that you're thinking about it because, um, life is short. So if you have something, if you have an itch that you got to scratch, I yeah. mean, um, True. very rarely do you end up with significant regrets about picking up new skills, starting a new business, um, those sort of things. Uh, it's a great learning experience. All right. John? Oh, John, thank you so much for the listener mail. This one goes, hey, the um, nightly news tells me that inflation went up 7.1%. And so if I didn't get a raise of 7.1% this year, I'm worse off and the world is ending. Am I being a little tr too dramatic with that recap, Dougals? Probably, but I understand why. This is what I call first grade journalism. This is 
so short-sighted and i guess i got fired up because i just saw this we got the listener mail from john midweek and then i was just down uh, the news was on in the background and and someone was being all dramatic about all the pay cuts that people took now let's think about this let's use howard mark's second level thinking right there's more to it than this if you are one who has a mortgage that you wrote five years ago at three percent that has cars that are paid off or maybe were purchased a while back, et cetera, et cetera, you could be significantly better off with high inflation. My The relative cost of that person's mortgage is a lot cheaper. It's a lot less of their income, even if their salary only increased by 5 or 6% because they have a fixed rate mortgage at 3%. So it's not as simple as like this, first grade journalism, oh, the world is ending, things are more expensive. Now, there are other people who don't own a home, don't own a car, didn't get a pay raise this year, and are seeing the cost of food, the cost of shelter, all these things go up, they're probably significantly worse off. But I just don't think it's as simple as this gets presented on the nightly news. I agree on it not being simple, and it's a uh, it's really tricky to discuss for the 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 bifurcation that you just laid out. One thing that's interesting, um, and this I'm going to say this from an academic standpoint, not a, like a human on the ground standpoint, because it can feel really different. If you look back over the past roughly hundred years, a little bit over, and look at inflation changes, typically, inflation is in the modern era, at least, um, is lower than what pay raises for that year are, typically. Mm-hmm. Now, again, that depends all on jobs. Like, there's so much, like, in the nuance. And so I'm saying that, like, generally from the academic sense. Then you have these very rare, which you've pointed out before, but, like, really rare high inflation circumstances. And by rare, like, it's happened four times in the last 100 years, yeah. 100-ish years. World War One in the US. In the US. We're talking US here. This is all US. And so when inflation gets this high, this kind of thing will pop up. Right. It says, but wage growth is under inflation. And so I'm losing money. But when wage growth is over inflation, no one says anything. And most of the time, depending on your job, right? Mm -hmm. Inflation is a lot lower. And so it's it's like it's really tricky, right? Um, but you know, to the to the second category of folks getting to the human level again, the second category of force you're talking about, like if you're living paycheck to paycheck, even when wage growth might be higher than inflation, then when this happens, it's it's a pretty significant, to use an economic term, externality in your life, right? That can feel really painful. But it's like it's so hard to uh, to like simplify it to the point of of what the article says. Yeah. So I've been on all sides of this, and. Uh... 20 years ago, I would have been the employee walking into my boss's office saying, inflation printed at 7.1%, give me a 7.1%, like very rigidly, right? Today, I mean, we talked about my company earlier. Today, I'm building the financial strategy for companies that with the CEO that have these sort of problems. And so I see the flip side of that where we're going, yes, we know the employee's costs are up. And we love these employees and we want to be sensitive to them. We absolutely care about being fair to them. But what does my pricing power look like? <laughs> what, um, 
is the economy going to do in 2023 that's going to impact my revenue levels? How are my profit margins moving? Like this, again, uh, sorry, because I sound like a broken record with everything is so complex, but it's just not that simple. Your company might not have the ability to increase their prices by 7.1%. And if they do, they might have some of their top talent that's demanding more than a 7.1% raise. It just can't cascade down to everyone where this gets tied off in a nice little bow and looks perfectly. You have to say, to your point, well, for the last decade, I was fortunate enough to get prey raises that outpaced inflation. And hopefully I was smart about how I spent that money or saved that money or invested that money. Now I'm probably facing a couple of years where I'm on the wrong side of that equation and I'm going to have to be smart about how I optimize my personal finances. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough. It's just not simple. So there, there's another there's another element of this, which is, I don't know what to call this. I think there's probably a phrase for it, but you basically say like it's level setting. Right. And sometimes there will be a level that's set that might be set too high. Right. And mm -hmm. if a level is set too high, like an individual employee, for example, if market rate is X and they're being paid 30 to 40 percent above X and then inflation hits, they're like, well, where's my 7 percent raise? They've actually been paid 30 percent higher than what the market would say they should have been paid for two years. And so, like, what do you do in that, that circumstance? And sometimes it's also what occurs where if we're sticking with salaries here for a second, where someone might say, well, this person's there, I'm below there, so bring me up to there. Now you've set a new level. And so when it yeah. comes to, as a company, when it now comes to increasing by a percentage basis on that, if your cost basis is already 10%, 15% above what it should be, increasing another 7%, you're, you're basically, as a company, you're trading the future, right? The mm -hmm. future viability of your organization, potentially. It's just, to your your point it's really complex like it's hard to to work through all this stuff and as an individual you might go i don't care if it's complex that's your problem they go well my problem in the future is all y'all's problem is what's tough yeah yep well and think about um again the the company's perspective of your goods whether they're goods or services are increasing in price your salaries are increasing and if you don't have that pricing power, you could be a company in your example that has historically paid people 15% over their market value. You, maybe you can't be a company that does that anymore because of all the financial challenges that existed in 2022. Really tough stuff. Yeah, it's really tough. I, Thank you. John, I hope we did that justice. Maybe we, Maybe I made some assumptions about where you're going with that, but I just don't think it's that simple. And I think it's really important to fight for a fair wage, but ultimately the way you prove that to your employer, if your employer is not receptive to those things, is you find another job or get multiple job offers that want to pay you that 7% more. Um, because if the market doesn't exist, then it's just a, a guessing game. So, is that it for 2022? So to put a bow on this, uh, I do think it's going to be next week, Dougals. We're going to do the breakdown of 2023 stock picks, um, which, oh my, I'm super excited about. I've done Ooh. some, I, can I drop this? Here's what my stock picks look like uh, going into 
2023. Like, did, you, did you do like a preliminary screen already or something? I did or a preliminary you... screen. Oh, come on. Ended up with 19 companies that hit the initial list. And then when I did the due diligence, I ended up with only eight companies, uh, which was lower than I expected because the market has pulled back a little bit. So I expected that list to be higher. Um, here's some stats on those companies. If you take all eight of those companies, group them together and do an equal weighting, meaning you'd buy one eighth, you know, you distribute your money one eighth across all those names. You're looking at a price to book for these deep value picks of 1.1 price to cash flow of 5.3. Anything less than seven is like screaming deal. Typically Dougal's uh, <laughs> price to earnings of 5.6 debt to equity of like 0.25. Um, mm. And even return on equity figures, this is this is high for the deep value uh, play of north of twenty percent. So I am so excited to. I'm really surprised by that one. I'm really yeah, surprised I know. by that one. That one's high. And I remember, was it last year, like around May or so, when you just like for funsies ran your screen? You're like, nothing's coming up. <laughs> like there is yep, no deep was. value. At, oh my goodness! At the peak of the bubble, I think I had like two names hitting. Now I have. Eight. And man, I am so excited to deploy this capital. So this is another tidbit. Uh, I ended up down 17.7% with a quantitative screen that we told the premium subscribers about at the start of um, 2022. And I'm super excited about that. I just barely beat the total return of the S&P 500. I can't wait for next week. And Dougal's, I don't think your screen hits for a couple more days. So you, you haven't opened your gifts like I have. Yeah, tomorrow morning. Uh, just yet. <laughs> do you have a time blocked on the calendar oh it's i've got days this is just like don't bother me time it's a, it's wonderful i'm so excited so that's good stuff guys we are super excited to talk to you next week we'll do a probably a year review uh for the non-premium subscribers and then we'll send out uh the latest not recommendations but we'll let you know how we're deploying our capital uh because we think that's important to do uh, for the premium subscribers Thank you, everybody. It's been a wonderful 20 deuce deuce. I said it again. That's three times this year I've said that. Now. <laughs> um, thanks, thanks for another year listening. Looking forward to 2023. See ya.